are listening to Radio Maria and it is time for Credo. I'm delighted, as always, when we have him to welcome Derek Williams to us this afternoon. Derek, welcome. How are you? Good afternoon. It's nice to be here on this stormy here. I don't know what it's like down there, but it's nice to be here on this stormy day. Good. It's good to have you, Derek. And I know that you're doing the second in a series on Mary, and this is Mary Proto-Evangelium. And as I said to you just before we started, I have no idea what that means. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing you this afternoon and learning more. Okay, am I just going to kick straight off Please, then? Please, Derek, do. Thank you. Okay, so last week um, we spoke about Mary as the new Eve, and we drew contrasts between the fall of man with the conversation between Eve and the serpent, and the redemption with the con- with the conversation between Mary and the angel. Um, just as a side note, I mentioned there how Eve's pre-fall name or title was woman. Adam called her woman. He was man. She was woman. The Hebrew version of woman, interestingly enough, given the events of the last 48 hours, is Isha. And so, so I sort of was taking into account the fact that Storm Woman was blasting across the country in the last 48 hours and caused a bit of a mess, <laughs> um, followed quickly by Storm Jocelyn, another delightful lady who is also making a bit of a mess. Um, I'm sure that we, we men will get our storm soon and we'll equally make a mess. But nonetheless, it was an interesting um, note that they chose the name Isha um, for the storm, um, which, once again, the Hebrew version of the of the word woman, which is Eve's name before the fall, after the fall, she's given the name Eve or Hava. Um, now, after the fall, God issues a series of um, what we would call curses, if you like. Um, he he makes a few statements to Adam and Eve, and um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna take a, a look at these curses. This is found in. Um, in Genesis chapter chapter three, um, and I'm just going to pull this out of my Bible, where God has to speak into the, the basically the fall. Okay, it begins in verse fourteen. The Lord God says to the serpent. Now bear in mind, the serpent is the devil. It's the evil one who has fallen to earth because he refused to worship God. Because of his pride. Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Um, now, I can pick upon that very line. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What is man what is man created from? Man was created from the dust of the earth. And the name Adam is a derivative, it's sort of um similar to the word Adama, which is the Hebrew word for dust. So um so Satan now, instead of being there worshipping God, he's there to attack 
man. That's all he's going to do, eating the dust of the earth all the days of his life. Now we come to the interesting bit, okay? Genesis 3, verse 15, okay? Before I, before I actually read it out, this is what's known as the Proto-Evangelium, this actual verse, okay? Proto meaning first, Evangelium meaning gospel, okay? So in the midst of this spiritual warfare, which has robbed our first parents of sanctifying grace, and has caused them to fall into original sin, and thus all human generations. So in the middle of this incredible warfare that has taken place, God speaks a message of peace, the first gospel. Because the word, don't forget, the word evangelium, um, which is the Latin word for gospel, uh, in, in essence, it, it means the proclaimer of peace, the message of peace. So God gives this message of peace. And I'm going to read this, this message of peace, not in the translation I've just read. I'm going to use the Durey-Rheims version because um, it's closer to the original. And it's very important that we see, see what the translation is like. Now, if you're reading it in your Bible, it's going to be different to this. I will put enmities between thee and the woman and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Okay, so I will make enemies of you and the woman. You sh she shall crush your head while you will lie in wait or strike at her heel. Now, most English translations do not use the word she or her. They will use he and him. He will. He will. So they would. This is a, This is um, the New American Bible. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's a poor translation. It's <laughs> a poor translation. That is an online translation. Bruise just doesn't work. Okay. The word is crush because it's meant to be deadly. The other word, bruise, you shall bruise him on the heel. That word is non-deadly. Okay, so the first one is the the redeemer, the redemption side. He shall bruise you on the head means he will crush you. So the serpent's head will be crushed while the serpent is striking the enemy. Now, why is it feminine? Why does it read, she shall crush your head while you strike at her heel? Because if you go back to the first part of Genesis 3.15, it says, it's God is speaking to the serpent. The serpent has just beguiled a woman. He, did, he didn't beguile Adam. He beguiled Eve. That's who the serpent went for. So God is saying, I'm going to make enemies of you and the woman. A minute ago, you're having a friendly conversation but you will be enemies. I will put an enmity between you and the woman. Okay, so the serpent and the woman, that's where the battle is. That's the battleground, okay? It's very important to get that because that's called the context of the sentence. The context of the sentence is the serpent versus the woman, not the serpent versus the man, but the serpent versus the woman. That's the context. I will make enemies of you, Satan, and the woman, or Isha. Okay, that's what that's the word being used between 
the, the, you and Isha. Then, then he says, and of your offspring and her offspring. Okay. Um, now, I think the context there is um, is a plural. That's the word. I was thinking my head was masculine, feminine because of the previous one. But in this case, it's plural. So the descendants of the woman versus the descendants of the serpent. And if you were to go to Revelation, book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 12, you would find the serpent, the dragon, has now gone to wage war against the offspring of the woman. And to be frank with you, if you just look at 2,000 years of church history, this is almost a constant. The, the enemies of the woman constantly putting to death the children of Our Lady. The, she's the mother of the church. He's waged war for 2,000 years on the church. Um, so we see that happening. And don't forget, Mary is the mother of the church. We are her offspring. Okay. So yeah, the, the context of the battle, I'm going to make enemies of you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. You think, where's the good news, Derek? <laughs> where's, the, where's the message of peace in all of this? But the message of peace is in that one liner. That one liner in the Douay Reims, she shall crush your head. Okay. She shall crush your head. Our Lady is the one destined to crush the head of the serpent. Why is it Our Lady who has to crush his head? Because it was Eve who, as it were, gave him power. And it's the head, the serpent. Don't forget, it's the head of the serpent where the power base lies. That's where the fangs, the poison is. Um, that's where he's going to eat his quarry. So that's what, that's what has to be crushed. It's the head of the serpent which has to be crushed. If you go for the tail of the serpent, it can grow a new tail. You have to go for the head to crush it. Okay, that's, that's the way to kill the serpent. So Our Lady is the one who has to crush the serpent's head. <clears throat> and she does this. She does this magnificently by God's power, something that Adam and Eve didn't trust in. But let's take a look, first of all, at, before we take a look at Our Lady crushing the serpent's head, let's take a wee look at what the serpent does. Uh, and once again, I'll go to the Duray Reims. You shall lie in wait for her heel. Okay. The word heel in the Hebrew language um, can translate, well, because the Hebrew language, you can have about 10 different meanings sometimes for words, because lots of different ways to translate it. It can translate as the rear of an army. Okay. So, Satan lying in wait to strike at her heel. So the very part of the body which is going to crush the serpent is the very part of the body that he is waiting to strike, which is the heel. That's the part he wants to strike. That's the part that's going to crush him. The rear of the army. What is the rear of the army? It's the end time saints who will crush the head of the serpent and bring about an era of peace in the world, which is where we're at now. We're at this era now that Louis de Montfort prophesied in his writings. 
the end times where the children of the woman are taking up their weapon, which is the rosary, and they're taking up their weapon of consecration. Many, many souls now are consecrated to Mary, probably more than in history. Um, and we are crushing the head of the serpent through our consecrations and our rosary. And we see this with many, many saints. St. Maximilian Colby, St. Louis de Montfort, St. Padre Pio, um, St. John Paul II. There's a whole list of saints of the last few centuries who were especially devoted to Mary, especially consecrated to her. Uh, and they're the ones who are crushing the head of the serpent through their own attack on the temptations in their life and their own growth in holiness and becoming great saints as a result. Now, let me flip back to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to go into the Dure-Reims translation. Or am I? No, I'm not. I'm going to go to the Catechism, first of all. It might seem like a little bit of a backtrack, but the Catechism... Um, speaks of Genesis 3.15 on four different occasions. So I'm going to draw out one or two of them. So God, it talks here about um, the stages of revelation. This is the Catechism Article 55, stages of revelation. And it talks about um, he how God manifested himself to our first parents from the very beginning, inviting them to intimate communion with him. So God walked in the Garden of Eden. Then it says in Article 55, this revelation of God before the fall was not broken off by our first parents' sin. After the fall, God buoyed them up with the hope of salvation by promising redemption. And he has never ceased to show his solicitude for the human race. For he wishes to give eternal life to all those who seek salvation by patience in well-doing. Now, um, I think, um, Aileen, are you on the microphone there ready to jump in? Or? I'm here. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> you, see, you seem to be chewing the microphone, so I didn't know if you wanted to jump <laughs> in and say something or not. <laughs> no, no, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm enjoying the catechism. Oh, okay, fair enough, right. So I'll keep on then. This now is Catechism Article 70. Beyond the witness to himself that God gives in created things, he manifested to himself to our first parents, spoke to them, and after the fall promised them salvation and offered them his covenant. Now that is a commentary from the Catechism, on Genesis 3.15, um, where after, immediately after the fall, immediately after Adam and Eve fall, God gives them a promise of the Redeemer and of the woman who would definitively crush the head of the serpent. Now, if I now go, so we've done sacred scripture using both New American Bible and the Duray Reims. We've looked at the Catechism. Now I want to look at a document that was published um, around 1854, and it's called The Dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Okay. This is what it says, because this is to do with the head of the serpent being crushed. 
Concerning the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, ancient indeed is that devotion of the faithful based on the belief that her soul in the first instance of its creation and in the first instant of the soul's infusion into the body was by a special grace and privilege of God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Son and Redeemer of the human race, preserved free from all stain of original sin. And in this sense have the faithful ever solemnized and celebrated the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. So what the Pope is saying there is that on the very first moment of Our Lady's soul being conceived in her body, very moment that she was conceived, by a special grace of God and by the merits of Christ, who was to die 30 years later on the cross, she was conceived pure from original sin. Um, now that is what John Paul II calls the negative side of the Immaculate Conception, because in his document, if you're keeping up, on Mother of the Redeemer, I think it's the Mother of the Redeemer, he talks about the positive side of the Immaculate Conception, whereby Our Lady had a unique holiness as a result of her son's merits as well. So she was preserved free from sin, but she was raised to a state of great holiness. Um, and if you like, above the angels in terms of her sanctity, because she's to be the mother of the Redeemer. Now that also is an important point to note. Um, one of the beautiful images in art that I like is the Annunciation by Fra Angelico. And sometimes it's not painted well. Copies of it are not painted well. The best copies, the best copies of the Annunciation, and you have to look carefully, is where the head of the angel is tipped slightly forward almost like a subtle bow, and the angel is slightly below the Blessed Virgin Mary's head. So it's showing that the angel is subordinate to Mary. Now, in, in other images of it, the angel is much, much higher than a, a, Our Lady. So Our Lady is gazing upward at the angel. Um, this doesn't represent the truth very well. And it's very important to recognize that in, in much Catholic art over the centuries, the artists were not just painting a picture. They were proclaiming the gospel. Now, the one who taught me about this was when I was doing my Maryvale degree um, many years ago, and it was Caroline Ferry, Dr. Caroline Ferry. And she took the class through... A, about five different works of art of the Blessed Virgin Mary, one of which was the Annunciation. And her explanation of it was sensational. She, she showed us each different part of the picture, and she was pointing out different aspects of the painting and how it related to the Gospel. And she was saying, when you look at these works of art, especially of the Renaissance and, th and so forth, they're, they're, the artist is proclaiming the Gospel through art. So look at what the gospel, look at what the image is saying and look at the colors as well. Um, 
For example, in some pictures of Our Lady, she's almost head to toe in either blue, bright blue, which indicates the overflowing of grace, or she can be covered in one painting I've seen completely from head to toe in bright red, which represents the blood of Christ. Because the only way she's free from sin is through the blood of Christ. And the prevenient grace of her son. Now, I've been going right for over 20 minutes, Aileen. <laughs> you're just a minute over, Derek. You're always a, you're always a good on time. Let's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's time for some music, isn't it? It is. Yeah, so we have Ave Maria, the song for Mary, and this is Jason Gray. She picks the flowers in the morning Tucks just a few in her hair The joy of her mother and father As she spins around unaware She carries her song in the evening And the dreams of all little girls She carries the bread to the table She carries the hope of the world
are listening to Radio Maria. It's our credo programme with Derek Williams today and he is speaking to us about Mary, the Proto-Evangelium. And as Derek rudely said, seeing me chewing on the mic as I was thinking (laughs) as he was speaking, I have a couple of questions, Derek, that I'd like to ask you. Um, I have a good friend. um, In fact, he's done a podcast for us on the radio. He's an Anglican priest and I used to go I worked at a university and he used to do a scriptural group once every week and I used to go to that and we did the book of Revelation and I was really surprised with my non-Catholic Christian compatriots that they really didn't see the Revelation and the woman and the serpent in the same way as we do they saw it very much as Israel and the tribes of Israel I can see it. I, I see that as Mary. As soon as I we were reading the book, to me, it was Mary. But I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about that to us. Absolutely. The first thing is that um, we, as Catholics, um, we are not a people of the book. Uh, we never have been. Okay. We the the Catholic Church gives the Bible. It's not. It's not born from the Bible. If you if you step across the divide, as it were, into if you like the Protestant world, with great respect to them, because I have a lot of beautiful Protestant friends have have done over the years, but for them it's about sola scriptura. It comes from the Bible. The church they call their church a Bible-based church. The church, the the church we are living in, the Catholic Church, gives the Bible. And it, it interprets it within the context of church life and of liturgy and so on. So for us, we, we have a different way of speaking about sacred scripture. And so when we get that in place, it, it means that the dialogue changes direction. Because we then have not just the Bible that we are referring to, which although the church is gives us the Bible. It must also be seen that Vatican II. One of the one of the guidelines that was given at Vatican II is that the Bible is the source book for our theology. Okay, um, but as a church, we are not Bible based. We are person based. Okay, based on Christ, centered on Christ. We are Christological. Okay, um, not Bible based, but person based. Um, so um, now we go we go to Revelation twelve and we say well or thirteen I can't remember I was getting too confused up so how how do we get this picture of the woman because this is what the church has taught through the centuries it's what we have received through tradition and once again that's an ugly world word 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 in the in the other side because because um, they look at the tradition of the Pharisees who put their tradition above. Um, the Torah. We don't replace it alongside because we have scripture, tradition, and magisterium. So traditionally speaking, um, one of the one, one of the ways to interpret that chapter of Revelation is Mary. One of the ways is um, Israel. So Revelation is one of those books that there really isn't always a definitive way of translating it. And that's important because some people say, oh, no, this is definitely what the book of Revelation means. The church doesn't talk about that way about many scriptures at all. 
<laughs> some, some, yeah, the Eucharist, for example. You know, we talk about John 6 and the Last Supper, etc. But other scriptures, we can interpret loads and loads of different ways, different layers all the time. The same with the book of Revelation, lots of different layers. And for us to sort of come out and say, this is a definitive way of interpreting the book of Revelation, whether it's chapter 12, 13, 14, that's not the way we would speak about Revelation. Thank you. The, the other thing, I, so I think related to that, if we look at the Bible, if we look at the Gospels, why is it that Mary isn't so prominent in them? And, that, and why is it that we have grown our understanding of her, not only through the script, in the scripture writing times, and I suppose the book of Revelation you've just spoken, could be one of those times where she, you know, the person, the writer mm. um, of the of Revelation, that interpretation may well have known that. Um, I mm. presume that we would think that he, that, that he would. It was John, wasn't it? Revelation. John wrote the yeah. book of Revelation as he wrote his gospel. Interesting enough, in his gospel, his his chapter two is centered around the person of Mary. Um, in his gospel, he never says Mary. He calls her woman or mother. Um, so never speaks. Luke speaks about Mary. John doesn't. John speaks about the woman, the mother. In Genesis, in John 2, and again in John 19, I think they're the only two places where Mary appears. Um, I don't think she's even in the post-resurrection appearances. Um, then Mary's found in Luke's Gospel in Luke 1, and she's found in one or two of the snippets, and then in Acts chapter chapter 1, chapter 2, where the, they're all gathered in the upper room. So she makes few appearances, um, but she's found there in the background, and also... Once again, um, in tradition. Now, if you remember, John's gospel, traditionally speaking, wasn't written until after 90 AD. So he had spent, he spent many years, several decades with Mary at Ephesus, taking good care of her. Um, and so he gets a, a, a conversation with her in those years, um, as does Luke. Luke says he's carefully researched it, and the only place he could have got his infancy narratives from were through talking to Mary. She'd have been the only witness to those narratives when, you know, 10 years or so after the ascension, whenever Luke wrote, wrote his gospel. So Mary's the source of information for these. But why, why, the church has often said, has often explained this, why is Mary kind of hidden, if you like, in the scriptures? Why isn't it more prominent? Why isn't she like the gospel of Mary, for example? Um, and it's, it's often, the reason is often given on a Christological basis that for the first few centuries of the church, that um, the focus was to be on discovering Christ, in the word of God, discovering who he was. And a lot of the early heresies and the early doctrines were about Christ. Um, the first doctrine, the first dogma on Mary, I don't think starts to come out until around the fifth century, the fourth century, 430, 450, with the Council of Chalcedon and the Council of Ephesus, where Mary as the mother of God is being defined. It's four centuries after the ascension, 400 years, um, ironically, at that point in time, we'd only had the Bible for probably, I think, a few decades. The actual uh, canon of Scripture had only just been defined. But for most of the time, the focus is on, is on Christ. 
Um, the focus on Mary has come gradually through the centuries. And in fact, only in the last 150 years have we solemnly defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which was 1854, and then the dogma of the Assumption, which was just over a century later, um, one by Pope Pius IX and the other one by Pope Pius XII. Um, and this is revealing to us how Mary's role is becoming more and more prominent in this age in which the serpent's head is to be crushed. And all of this, I think, is providential because Mary's role um, it's like, why did the, why did mankind have to wait 4,000 years for her to show up, you know? And now here again, why have we had to wait 2,000 years for her to become so widely prominent? In one sense, we did, and in another sense, we didn't. If we turn the clock back, uh, let's say turn the clock back a subtle 1,500 years, um, this nation was dedicated as a diary of Mary. You know, and churches all over this country were called St. Mary's, which was the early title for Mary. It wasn't Our Lady, it was St. Mary. So England was known for its devotion to Mary for probably the best part of a thousand years. So it's been there. But I think our problem is that we were, we had this Reformation business that happened just a few hundred years ago. And all of this was stripped out of our culture. If we go to places like Italy, um, Mexico with Guadalupe, Portugal with Fatima, if we go to Bosnia with Medjugorje, um, uh, if we go to Spain, other countries that haven't suffered the effects of the Reformation like we have, you get a far stronger Marian dimension. And this came across to me when I was in dialogue with a priest friend of mine. I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name. He's a beautiful Franciscan priest called Father Gerard Mary. And he was studying in Rome. Father Gerard Mary, please forgive me. I can't remember if it was a, an MA in Mariology or if it was a PhD. I, I can't remember which one it was. And he was doing it in Italian. And he said to me in an email once, he was amazed at the amount of books on Mary in Italian. He said, we've got quite a few in English, but it doesn't compare with what the Italians have got. They've got far, far more richness in respect of their Mariology, which we do not have. Do you want to comment on all this? I've really gone off on one there. That was the longest answer to a question in the history that, of Radio that Maria. Is, <laughs> that was fascinating. No, it was really fascinating. Um, the the other thing I had in mind, and I think it again it relates to what you've been saying, Derek, and it's lovely to to speak about this, and you've invited me to ask these questions as well. Mm. But sometimes with Mary, sometimes not always, obviously, but sometimes um, there is a sense that Mary is there as an ideal for women, and of course she is that to us as, a, as for womanhood. She is important mm -hmm. for us as women. Um, sometimes that can feel, or it's historically, sometimes obviously women haven't always had a great history um, in, in church and just in general culture. Um, and I, I, so I wonder with Mary, she is there for us as women, but more importantly, this is my question, is she there for the whole of humanity? Um, that she says yes for humanity. She brings Christ into the world 
for humanity. And when I was thinking about when you were talking about the angels, I, I was thinking about the apostles and I was thinking she stands above the apostles too. Um, is she the greatest priest, prophet, king in our history? I wondered. These are, this is a good question. Okay. Um, let's take a look at, um, let's think of Mary. Let's, let's not think of Mary for the moment in terms of the rosary and devotion. Let's think of her in terms of queen, mother, and saint maker. And, you know, we looked at, you mentioned there, priest, prophet, and king. Yes, she, she like us, priest, prophet, and king. But for her, she also has this office, which we do not have, where she is queen of heaven and earth, queen over all the angels and saints. So she's a queen in the order of grace, queen in the order of the spiritual life. Um, she's also a mother in the order of grace. She's like Pope Francis gave us that beautiful feast the day after Pentecost, the feast of Mary, mother of the church. Uh, we celebrate the feast of Mary, the mother of God, on the 1st of January, first day of the year, of the, of the second year. And now the, the first day after the church is born, the day after Pentecost, we now celebrate the feast of Mary, the mother of the church. So she gives birth to Christ the Redeemer, and she gives birth, in a sense, in a spiritual sense, to the church um, on that beautiful day after Pentecost. What does this speak to us about the role of, as you say, women and Mary and the relationship that's going on there? Often the relationship is seen in these days between men and women and the, the role of women in the church, etc., in a very negative light, which I actually disagree with. Um, the church has raised many women up to the altar, especially in these days where we have received several women who are now doctors of the church. Teresa of Lisieux, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, and Pope John Paul II with St. Faustina, who will probably be a doctor of the church one day. One of my favorites, a servant of God at the moment, but I believe will one day be a doctor of the church, which is a servant of God, Luisa Picaretta. All these women that the church is raising up. The problem is that in the secular world in which we live, when a woman is given status, etc., it's often in terms of business and so on. And the, the suffering a person has to go through in order to keep that kind of position in business, for example, um, is often accepted because you're earning money and you're leading a business and you're leading a company of directors and so on. Let's take women in sports, um, footballers. Fo women's, women's football I find very entertaining, um, not in a negative sense at all. I like the speed of it. I like the pace of it. I like the talent. The, the, I find women footballers are incredibly talented. Um, um, and so they are they're doing their thing, doing, playing their football. But you're not going to achieve that without suffering. That everyone knows that you're not going to reach the top in any sport, in any profession, without suffering. In the church, we seem to not understand this. Um, we understand that suffering is needed, but what people don't understand is that in order for us to become sanctified, and in order if we're going to have position within the church, which the church does give, um, then suffering is inevitable. It, it's necessary. And it's that suffering which we, we don't always clue into. Now, 
Mary is known to have suffered Our Lady of Sorrows. She stood at the foot of a cross and she watched her completely innocent son, her only son. She watched him being, well, if you've ever watched The Passion of the Christ, she watched him being scourged, crowned with thorns, condemned to death. Uh, she watched him walk the way of the cross. She watched him be nailed to the cross and then she watched him suffer agonizingly and die on the cross. None of which he did for himself, all of which he did for everyone else, including her. So she's watching her son and her, her sinlessness is because of what she's observing. That's the only reason she's sinless. So her dignity as mother, as queen, as prophet, as many, which is the full of grace, all comes through her receiving everything her son wishes to give her. And I think that this is one of the important things about the relationship between men and women. Let's take a look at one scripture here, which is Ephesians chapter 5, it's around verse 22, 23. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I think the Greek word for submit is hupotasso. Forgive me if I got that one wrong. I think it's hupotasso. It means to come under the mission of your husbands. What is the husband's mission? It's in pretty much an excess sentence. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So laying your life down for her. That's what the, so the men are called to lay their lives down for the women in order for the woman to be sanctified. Now, why wouldn't you lay? Why wouldn't you want to submit to that? Why wouldn't you want to let your husband lay his life down for you? And I think that this is one of the reasons why we have this clash at the moment, is because um, husbands often have not laid down their life, but they have expected the women to submit, and therefore you have that tension, which has arisen, which is perfectly understandable. Um, but Mary shows us what we can become when we are completely receiving from God everything that God wants to give us. So we are, if you like, submitting to God's grace, God's power, and God's mercy. But always remember, it is never going to be without suffering. I was uh, just thinking how... Um... Our lives are gifts to us, but that we give them back, don't they? They're sacrificial. We're supposed to have sacrificial lives like Jesus did. Absolutely. Yeah. Jesus himself said, no one can save his life unless he lose it. Um, but once again, this is the law of grace. And we have to remember, um, it's in the catechism, I think it's in the section on the spiritual life later on in the catechism, where it says that we are called, supernatural, our vocation is supernatural. We are called to the supernatural life of grace. And that supernatural life means putting a death to, if you, a death, if you like, to what is natural in order that what is supernatural can, can freely reign in us, which is what Mary does. You know, last week we talked about the Annunciation and Mary, it says Mary was a virgin. And in order for her to become mother, something must die. Because she's thinking, she, she, I mean, she, she's possibly thinking, um, I'm not, I didn't think I would be mother. 
I was given over to be a virgin for my life. But now I'm being called to be mother. So something has to change in you to realize that transformation, your vocation. What a wonderful um, exposition you've given us there, Derek. <laughs> and, and Mary um, starts, in a, you know, there's a, for me listening, there is a fresh understanding of the completeness of her life. And how we emulate that. And of course, um, yeah, that's wonderful. I want to suggest we go to some music. And I'd like, to in, I'd like to invite our listeners. Um, I am so sorry if I've dominated with too many questions here. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to play for you Father Tanzi. And this is Garden. I want to go to the place all alone Where only we know I want to go to the place in my soul Where only we know How beautiful is the place where I go with you, Lord, alone A hidden cove is the place where streams flow There you rest my soul A garden enclosed Where living water flows Is the place where we go To go to the place through the groves where your spices grow. Aloes and myrrh in the place where where only we know. Oh, hurry on, Jesus, haste. Let us go to my hungry soul when wine and bread is. That was Father Tanzi and Garden. And again, um, I've had a little chat through the music with Derek and I've had another question. And as Derek was talking about Mary, this great woman, this great queen of heaven, this great mother to us, us being her offspring, um, this fulfillment of promises that we see in Mary and that we emulate and we can trust that we are brought to, to, to not the same as Mary, but to, to share in that, participate in that. And the other person that came to my mind was Abraham and that great prophet, the, our father in faith. And I was saying to Derek, is, is, Mary, is Mary also like, um, she's 
the second Eve, but is somehow she related to Abraham in that she has offspring, she has descendants. And then Derek was saying, why are these men alien? And I was saying, because Abraham is great and Mary is great. That's where the question comes from. So there you go, Derek. You invited me to bring it up here with our, with, with our community listening in. Absolutely. And these are questions are too tough, so I'm resigning. Anyway, <laughs> this is a, once again a good question. So first, I want to go to the catechism. There is a reason for this. This is uh, Catechism Article 410. After his fall, man was not abandoned by God. On the contrary, God calls him and in a mysterious way heralds the coming victory over evil and his restoration from his fall. This passage in Genesis is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first announcement of the Messiah and Redeemer of a battle between the serpent and the woman and of the final victory of a descendant of hers. Okay, so that's Catechism Article 410. Now, the promise of the Redeemer. If we then look at the person of Abraham, and God gives Abraham a promise of a seed. And when we look at the genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels, it's going back to Abraham. And don't forget, Jesus is the son by um, Mary's conceiving him. Okay, so Mary conceives Jesus, so she's from that line of Mary, and she's a, she's a daughter of Abraham, and she's called daughter of Abraham. Now, my 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 question back to you was, why these men? Because when we look at typology and the persons of the Old Testament, um, we don't draw a comparison between Abraham and Mary. We draw one between Sarah and Mary. We draw one between Deborah and Mary, Esther and Mary. So we look at the the what we would call the matriarchal line of the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant and Mary, because whereas Abraham is the great patriarch, Mary is the great matriarch, as it were. And yes, you would say Abraham, he's a, he, he is great. Um, but of Mary, it says Mary herself testifies by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we say Abraham is great, but Mary says the Almighty has done great things for me. And then later on, she talks about the promise. Remember, remember the, the Proto-Evangelium is the promise of God. Mary speaks about the promise, and in Luke one fifty-five says, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So that would be us now who are priest, prophet, and king. And we, being the descendants of Abraham in the spiritual, we being the descendants of Mary, the children of Mary in the spiritual. So you have all these interlinking things which flow from that idea. But when we're looking at sacred scripture, try to think in terms of with Mary, when we're looking typologically, we're always thinking about the women of the Old Testament. For example, even with the great kings of Israel, King Solomon. We, Scott Hahn wrote a book about, include this in one of his books, where he talks about Bathsheba, the king's mother. And he compares Solomon with Christ, 
and Bathsheba with Mary, and how Bathsheba interceded with Solomon, and Solomon granted her prayer. And that's where we get, and Esther, Esther interceding with Nebuchadnezzar, I think it's Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar granting Esther's prayer. And I will do a session on Esther, because I find her very intriguing. Does that shed any light whatsoever on it, the matter? It, ab it absolutely does, and I think <laughs> um, I think Ma Mary is there, and she's she's there for humanity, um, but also she's woman, and half it's of us are women. Yeah, it's absolutely vital to recognise Mary is there for humanity, and she shows, if you like, she shows women what they can be. And if we look at the saints of the church, the female saints, we see women who had a special relationship with Mary. If we take a look at just Tres of Lisieux, when she was very sick as a child. Now, I don't know the full story, but I have been to the room where this happened. A statue of Mary, I think, came alive. And she said it was a defining moment in her life where everything changed. Um, and this is where we see Our Lady, not just for devotion. And I, I like this, this phrase, she is the saint maker. She is full of grace, not just for herself and for her son, but for us. So we have to remember that. Um, no, it's, it's, it's five, so I'm always conscious of the time and my laptop and so on. Um, do you have anything else you wish to ask or should we go to a final song and a prayer time? Yeah, I think the just thing, one thing that to add to anybody, for anybody listening, Derek, is I am remembering that at Radio Maria, we had a lady and I'm so sorry, I can't remember her name at this point in time. Um, but to what I think in Advent, she did the women the great women people through the Old Testament, actually. So my question came partly because I don't know them as well. And it's really taught me explore these women um, more, you know, and yeah. because they are there. I understand what you've said. Yes. Yes, they are there. And we find Mary throughout the Old Testament and, and fulfilled in her person. And then what we find in the last 2000 years of the church is whereas in the Old Testament we get typology, now what we get is we get children of Mary who she transforms their lives um, through their devotion to her, through their consecration to her. The She crushes the serpent head in our life. And we that's, that's where she helps us. Thank you, Derek. So, yes, it would be lovely to have... Um, some prayer from you now at to for the end of our um program if you would do that i have got some music yeah. on and then we will have the the outro music great okay so in the name of father son holy spirit amen so we thank you heavenly father for giving us our blessed mother we thank you for her role in her in our lives we thank you for all those people out there who are consecrated to Mary in a special way and who are warriors for you. And I ask you, Lord, to ask your Blessed Mother, would you please reach out and touch those people who are listening in? Everyone has got a burden, a worry, an anxiety, a cross, a difficulty. 
Blessed Mother, would you please reach out and touch and bring people peace to help them to walk in the ways of your Son. We don't ask you to take our crosses. We ask you to help us to carry them joyfully. Because a cross carried joyfully is greatly sanctifying. So we ask you as Queen of Peace, Mother of the Church, Mother of God, Theotokos, please touch our lives and help us to carry the crosses, help us to be a people of peace in the kingdom of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>